So I've been living in Atlanta for a few months now, and I'm really starting to get to know the place, you know, finding my favorite restaurants and places to hang out. And one of my favorite restaurants right now is this place, Tassily's Raw Reality Cafe in West Atlanta. It's a vegan spot that's amazing. And every time I walk out of there, I notice this old burnt orange Victorian house right across the street. And this house is on a beautiful lot with a well-maintained lawn, tons of nice trees, and it has a large, inviting wraparound porch with a stylish trim. There's a sign out front that says, The Wren's Nest. After seeing it a few times, I got curious. So I reached out to the folks who run the Wren's Nest, and I paid the house an official visit. The house just has a really classic feel to it, you know? Like, nothing too modern on the outside. Even the lights are kind of old style. Um, those like really big bulb lights that kind of looks like there could be a flame inside of it. Um, there's cobwebs in some part, some corners of the house. This house sticks out in the neighborhood. You know, there's a lot of businesses around here and some houses too. But besides this one, there aren't any Victorian homes. But this isn't just a house. It's actually a museum and a hub for storytellers. That's where we're headed today. My name is Baudelaire, and this is Atlas Obscura, a celebration of the world's strange, wondrous... Um, I never get that right. I never get that right in the field. Uh, yeah. Here's me uh, in cleaner audio saying what I can't remember right now. Love y'all either way. Let's try that again. I'm Baudelaire, and this is Atlas Obscura, a celebration of the world's strange, incredible, and wondrous places. Today, we get the story of author Joel Chandler Harris and his home, The Wren's Nest. More after this. If you're looking for a place where the wide open skies and the towering mountains inspire you to find an untapped part of yourself, you might want to take a trip to Wyoming. It's a place where bold, curious spirits forge their own way on all types of adventures. There is no shortage of iconic, expansive landscapes out there. You can discover breathtaking hikes, stunning state parks, authentic Western culture, and other historic sites— along with the tales of famous outlaws like Butch Cassidy and pioneers like Buffalo Bill Cody. The truth lies west. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. How you doing? Hey. How you doing? Baudelaire. Jim. Jim Ockmitty. Ah, nice to meet you. It's good to meet you. 
Jim Ockbeauty is a member of the board at the Wren's Nest and a former reporter and editor at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Joel Chandler Harris, the guy who lived here, uh, was for 24 years an editor of the Constitution, so we're sort of fellow alumni. Joel Chandler Harris, the former owner of this house, was an author. He was white, but he was best known for writing stories inspired by West African folktales. They're not as well remembered today, but in their time, they were uh, hugely popular. Uh, During his lifetime, he was probably, I would say, the second best-known writer in America behind Mark Twain, who was a good friend of his. Joel Chandler Harris was wildly successful in his lifetime, but his origin story is a modest one. He was born to a poor family in rural Georgia a little over a decade before the Civil War. And as a teenager, Harris got an opportunity that would change the course of his life when he started working at the Turnwald Plantation. The guy who ran it wasn't just a farmer. Uh, He actually published a newspaper called The Countryman, which was a widely circulated regional paper that covered agricultural issues, but also a lot of opinion and current affairs. The owner of the plantation taught Harris how to set print for newspapers and let him read in his library, which nurtured Harris's love for writing and literature. But while he was learning from the plantation owner, in his free time, Harris would hang out with the enslaved people. And he was enthralled by these stories that some of the older slaves would tell. And these stories were, they were animal. They were critter parables is what they were. Mm. Uh, They were kind of like Aesop's fables from Greece, and they were largely derived from West African folktales. And they made a real impression on Harris. By the time Harris was a young adult, the Civil War had just ended. Harris started working at newspapers around Georgia and eventually ended up at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. The paper had an opening for a writer for its popular folktales column, and Harris took it over. And he thought back to these stories that he heard on the plantation when he was a teenager. Mm. And he started writing these stories. Some of the most famous ones appeared in the newspaper very early on. Nowadays, these stories by Harris are often referred to as the Uncle Remus stories or the Br'er Rabbit stories. Uncle Remus is the made-up narrator of the stories, and Br'er Rabbit is the most central character. The stories were a hit, and opportunities came knocking for Joel Chandler Harris. And... They were so popular that a New York publisher approached him about doing a book, Mm -hmm. a collection of them. I should add that not all of the Uncle Remus stories were West African folktales. There were some Native American and even a few European folktales mixed in. But Harris wasn't shy about admitting where the majority of the tales came from. The stories, he was always very honest and transparent about where most of the stories came from. He said they came from these people I grew up with that I knew on the plantation. So did he, when the, when the stories, when the success of the, the stories um, grew, right, you, you said that he was transparent about the source of the stories, but did the sources of the stories ever benefit from the success of the books? No, 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 of course not. There's a, there's a degree of appropriation going on here for sure. With the success of the Uncle Remus books, Joel Chandler Harris was able to buy a modest house on the west side of Atlanta in 1881. And then after he started earning some more royalties from the first Uncle Remus volume, Mm -hmm. uh, they had enough money to remodel this place, and they had it substantially rebuilt. The front of the house that you see with the big wraparound porch 
and the, 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 the second story and, and it looks like a Queen Anne Victorian place. Mm-hmm. It didn't look anything like that in the beginning. That was all from this remodeling. And now that it was this big, burnt orange, Victorian-styled house with red trimming and a beautiful yard, the house always had visitors. And those visitors included a family of wrens who made a home in the mailbox. And Harris, who obviously loved critters, I mean, look, he devoted his life to telling me stories about foxes and rabbits. He would not evict the birds. And his family laughed and they started telling people, you know, who were coming to the house, just, you'll have no problem finding us. We're at the sign of the wren's nest. Oh, okay. (laughs) So that got shortened to the wren's nest. Joel Chandler Harris died in 1908. And after he died, some of his famous friends and admirers, people like Andrew Carnegie and then President Theodore Roosevelt, wanted his house to be preserved. Speaking of Roosevelt, look up in the corner in this room here. Mm-hmm. There's You can't see it too well right now because he's kind of in the shadows, but there's a stuffed owl up in there in the corner that was a gift from Theodore Roosevelt. All right, let me just say that this taxidermy owl Jim just casually mentioned was huge, like bigger than any owl I'd ever seen. And it was mounted right in the corner of the room we were sitting in, looking down at us. This was back during the period when Theodore Roosevelt was going around bagging all these animals for the Natural History Museum in New York. So he must have had a leftover owl for his friend, uh, Joe Harris. Wait, so that would have been a... That's a that, that was a gift from Theodore Roosevelt. No, but that's like a real owl. Yeah, it's a real stuffed owl from Theodore Roosevelt to George Allen Harris. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's scary. Yeah, yeah, yeah it is. Like, like, <laughs> the way it like, looks over a, the room. We need to put a spotlight on it. Yeah, yeah. With the help of Roosevelt and Carnegie, they raise enough money to buy the house from the family and turn the place into a museum. For for a long time after this became a museum in 1913, the people who ran it were a lot of the same people who were in the United Daughters of the Confederacy Mm. were among the people who ran this place. The United Daughters of the Confederacy is an organization, still around today, that is responsible for a decent amount of the Confederate statues across the southern states of this country and are very pro, how should I say this? They're pro a certain version of U.S. history. And Jim told me he doesn't think Joel Chandler Harris would have been so into the idea of his museum being run by members of this group. Let me give you a quick piece of background about how I think that would have displeased Harris. Mm -hmm. Harris was a very progressive man on race for his time. Mm -hmm. Would he have, uh, you know, stood muster with all of our expectations now? Of course not. He Mm -hmm. was a white man of the South in in the Mm -hmm. late 1800s. But he believed in black education. He believed Mm -hmm. in voting rights. Mm -hmm. And he was not a Confederate apologist. And he... The idea that his house would have been run by these people who were so dominated by the United Daughters of the Confederacy and that they would have kept it segregated long past the 64 Civil Rights Act, Mm. uh, I think would have pained him. So to be clear, even though technically, legally, black people were allowed to come into the Wren's Nest by the mid-1960s, the folks running the museum made it clear they wouldn't be welcome. These... Like, I'm trying to wrap my mind around, like, the people that would come to this house were coming to a house to admire the work of a guy who wrote predominantly about black people or, or like, black stories. Yes, yes. And they themselves (laughs) were coming to a segregated place. They were. They were. And uh, 
All I can tell you is that for decades they presented a story, a, a version of these stories that was sort of moonlight magnolias and kind of sentimental and very, you know, apologetic for what slavery was. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it, uh, and it wasn't untypical of the kind of things that you found in those decades, particularly not in a city like Atlanta. This version of the Wren's Nest started to change in the early 1980s. The people who were running this place, mm-hmm. they were starting to run out of, a lot of them had died off, and mm-hmm. they were running out of money and energy, and some younger women came in and they realized they had a problem here, mm-hmm. both in terms of resources, because the house was about to fall apart and they needed to raise money to save it if it was worth saving. Mm-hmm. But they also realized that the world had changed and they had done a very good job of reflecting that. In the early 80s, new management came in, and with them came new board members like Ralph David Abernathy and John Lewis, two black civil rights legends who were very influential and revered, not just in the black community in Atlanta, but across the country. And slowly over time, the black community warmed up to the Wren's Nest. Once the Wren's Nest was actually integrated, black storytellers made up a majority of those who came by, and some told their own stories or other African folk tales, and some even told some Uncle Remus stories. And that tradition remains at the Wren's Nest today. A few days after my interview with Jim, I stopped by the Wren's Nest for their weekly Saturday storytelling and heard a story from a man by the name of Cheddar Galloway. This is called The King's Advisor. (laughs) Once there was a king named Big King Tela'uri. Now he was the biggest of the big, the baddest of the bad. He used to walk around like Muhammad Ali saying, I am the greatest. And it was hard to argue with him because he ruled the lands up to the north, the south, the east, and the west. And being that he has such colossal ego... Now, I can't let you hear all of Cheddar's story, I'm sorry. But you can hear stories from Cheddar and amazing storytellers like him every Saturday at the Wren's Nest at 1 p.m. Thank you so much to Jim Ockmuty for sitting down with me for today's episode. This podcast is a co-production of Atlas Obscura and Witness Docs. Our production team includes Dylan Therese, Doug Baldinger, Chris Naka, Camille Stanley, Willis Ryder Arnold, Sarah Wyman, Manolo Morales, Devin DeComo, Chica Okoye, Gianna Palmer, Tracy Samuelson, John Delore. Our technical director is Casey Holford. Our theme and end credit music is by Sam Tyndall. This episode was sound designed and mixed by Luce Fleming. If you want to learn more, be sure to visit atlasobscura.com. There's a link in our episode description. My name is Baudelaire. Witness Docs from Stitcher. The world isn't wide enough for those with an insatiable desire for discovery. The all-new 2024 Lincoln Nautilus Hybrid SUV offers the power and freedom to explore further and deeper than ever before. Intuitive, smart features ensure they are always connected to the road ahead. Inside, a thoughtfully designed cabin immerses you in a universe that is all your own. The larger-than-life panoramic display spans the entire width of the cabin. It's customizable and interactive. Drivers can even personalize their backgrounds with a series of nature-inspired themes. This vehicle signals the arrival of an exciting new chapter for Lincoln. Discover more about the 2024 Lincoln Nautilus at Lincoln.com.
Hi, I'm Willa Paskin, the host of Decoder Ring, Slate's podcast about cracking cultural mysteries. On Decoder Ring, we dive down rabbit holes and obsessively explore questions hiding in plain sight. Like, why has slow dancing gone out of style? And when did we all become obsessed with hydration? And where did the word mullet, you know, to describe a hairstyle, come from? That's Decodering, named one of the best podcasts of 2023 by The New York Times. Listen to new episodes every two weeks and make sure to follow us so you never miss one.